resolution is proportional to lambda over d. With George Bendo, Ian Evans, Fiona Healy, Bonnie Kenson, Minnie Mao, Benjamin Shaw, and Charlie The Jodcast, January 2017 Extra Edition. Hi, and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Monique, and joining me in the studio are Fiona and Ian. Hi, Monique. Hello, Monique. And Ian, this is your first time presenting, although we have heard you on the news. Yes, yes, I presented the news in November, uh, first time as a presenter. Um, and what brings you to JBCA? Um, I'm a physics teacher uh, and I'm taking a year out to do a master's in astronomy and I'm working at the Jodrell Bank Observatory uh, on the Bingo Project, which is looking at baryon acoustic oscillations. In the show this time, Ben, George and Fiona answer your astronomical questions and we interview Elaine Sadler about ASCAP. But first, before all that, Charlie and Fiona talk to Indy Leclerc in this month's Jodvite. Today we are joined by former Mr Indy Leclerc, now Dr Indy Leclerc of JVCA. Welcome to the Jogcast. Thank you. It's uh, it's weird to be on the other side of the table <laughs> in our tiny recording studio. And it's been a while since you've been on, right? It has been a while, yeah, because I left Manchester to finish writing my thesis up um, and I've just come back to do my fiver and uh, obviously the most important part was recording a jod bite for the Jodcast. So. so congratulations on the fiver. Thank you. Congratulations on your first job by interview well yeah first on this i'm not going to do another one for a while uh, well, you say that, but, yeah, who knows um so could, could you first tell us i guess what was the title of your thesis um the title was the local radio sky high frequency resolution single dish studies of polarized galactic synchrotron emission around 1.4 gigahertz not the snappiest title Catchy. Um, but i think I was told descriptive is good so descriptive it is and yeah. was the first thing you were asked in your viva what did you do yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, the Fiverr was just, it was quite long. It was like three and a half hours and they just asked me a bunch of questions on my thesis, pretty much going from page one to page, don't want to relive it. Yeah, yeah no, that, that sounds like, yeah, that sounds like no fun. I remember talking to you before it and uh, you were like, you know, I don't know what to expect and it's, it's uh, the unknown is frightening and... And I was saying, you know, I like to imagine and I comfort myself with the thought that like you go in there and it probably doesn't feel like it's taking three and a half hours. Did it feel like three and a half hours? Not at all. Uh, the first, oh, really the first two hours went by and one of the examiners was like, oh, that's been two hours already. And I just looked, I was like, are you kidding me? That felt like 10 minutes. So, <laughs> nice. I had that much fun. I don't know if I call it fun, but it definitely <laughs> went by really, really quickly. Um, and no, once you're in it, they, they do, they do make you feel at ease. And at the end of the day, you're talking about something that you've been working on for the last four years. So yeah, I, I think, I like to think I know what I was talking about, at least yesterday. <laughs> well, they think you know what you were talking about. Clearly they did. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> um, the titles prove it. I do. Tell us about the radio sky. Why is it why is it special at 0.4 gigahertz? 1.4 gigahertz. Why is it special um, at 1.4 gigahertz? Yeah, the main theme of what I've been doing for my PhD was studying what's known as diffuse radio emission in the Milky Way. So that's stuff that basically isn't a point source. So emission, radio emission that doesn't come from pulsars or doesn't come from objects, but is just kind of cloudy, fairly neglected side of, uh, of, of what's going on in the sky. Um, but it's really cool because when you point a radio telescope up at the right sort of frequencies, and if you've got the right kind of telescope as well, because the easiest way to study this diffuse emission is using single dish telescopes as opposed to um, interferometers, because interferometers have great resolution. But it's like the thing where the analogy of looking at an elephant with a magnifying glass, you probably at some point have no idea that you're actually looking at an elephant. Whereas if you look with a single dish telescope, you can see um, much more extended and broad features. And so you start to see this this really great, yeah, it's, it's almost cloud-like patterns in the sky. Um, 
And so I was doing, my, most of my observations came from the Arecibo telescope, which uh, our listeners may or may not be familiar with, but um, it's the big 300-meter dish that's in Puerto Rico in the Caribbean. Um, it's, uh, it's the James Bond telescope. It is, the, it is the Golden Eye uh, the Golden Eye telescope. It was in contact as well. Uh, which and you've been there. And I've been there, but we got to walk up on the gantry on the top and like oh, walk good. above it which is actually terrifying because there's a tiny wiry suspension bridge that leads yeah. to like the middle of this dish and you're you're i don't know it's like a hundred meters up in the air above this slightly swaying oh, etc yeah because um, you're basically standing over this big crater right? yeah, so it's, yeah essentially yeah, yeah, yeah. um this is where you know james bond pushed sean bean to his death so poor sean <laughs> bean that man can't catch a break <laughs> uh, clearly so so that was that was an amazing experience and i got to actually do remote observation with Arecibo from my bedroom, which is pretty cool because nice. you push a button on your computer and a huge chunk of metal halfway across the world starts moving. Pretty cool as well. And and yeah, we get these really cool, cool pictures. Uh, I know that it's a bit of a cliche to say that all we do in astronomy is make pretty pictures, but for my, in my case, it was kind of true. So listeners, check out the cover art for the episode. <laughs> so as I was saying, yeah, I mean, so, so I'm studying the diffuse emission and um, so this emission is caused by electrons that, that sort of float around in, in space, which have generated by very energetic events in the galaxy, like um, shock fronts or also pulsar winds. These electrons are actually moving at relativistic speeds, so appreciable fractions of the speed of light. And um, so when these electrons encounter magnetic fields, they get accelerated and, and they sort of start having this spiral motion. Uh, if you've got a magnetic field going in sort of one direction, the electron itself will kind of spiral around the field direction. And when you get a spiraling electron, that what that does is that emits energy in the form of light and in this case because of the geometry of the situation it will emit radio frequency light and so this is what we pick up with our telescopes and it generates this really cool structure so clearly the emission is really linked to the magnetic fields that you can find in the milky way or in the interstellar medium which is the stuff between the stars and i mean people say space is empty but it really isn't to astronomers and so this the ism is not very dense at all but you can still see all sorts of stuff in between stars and, and things um, and so I was basically looking at that, this diffuse emission. Um, so the first reason we study them is to actually look at the ISM and magnetic fields, which in our Milky Way we don't have a clear picture of. We know some things about the magnetic field in the Milky Way, partially based on our own observations, partially based on observations of other galaxies. And the interesting thing is that in spiral galaxies, you've got a magnetic field that actually follows the shape of the spiral. So you've got this large scale magnetic field, which is quite weak, but it's still there. It has this big large structure and then at smaller scales you have more turbulent sort of messy magnetic fields that um that generate more diffuse emission so are these magnetic fields sort of compounded from all the things within the galaxy or are they dominated by maybe the supermassive black hole at the center um so it's unclear how the large scale magnetic field actually arises um but the best theory is that you start off with some small seed field from a supernova or, or some other primordial origin from when the galaxy itself was very young and then this field sort of gets amplified because you wind it up potentially and you um you increase the uh the, the strength using a sort of dynamo mechanism basically. that's really interesting so presumably you were looking at the polarization so that's the um the other aspect of uh things that you look at is that this synchrotron radiation this diffuse radio emission is actually highly polarized so the light is emitted in a preferred sort of direction and that actually tells you straight away what the magnetic field orientation is that generated the emission and it's actually the interesting thing about polarized radiation or polarized light is that when it goes when it passes through a plasma the angle of polarization actually rotates according to depending on the wavelength and this effect is called faraday rotation 
And you can use it to determine a lot of cool things because it depends on stuff like electron density, the field strength itself. And so one big part of my thesis was applying Faraday rotation analysis to the polarized emission from the Milky Way and, and, and finding finding out more about either interesting objects or like supernova remnants or bubbles of ionized hydrogen um, or just generally the magnetic field itself, which you can determine using Faraday rotation. That's really cool because I've heard of similar techniques being used to study um, AGN magnetic fields, which mm -hmm. have a similar sort of thing where they get kind of wound up by the mm -hmm. rotating black hole. And uh, I didn't know that that was also being applied to our own Milky Way and things in the Milky Way. That's, uh, that's Yeah, yeah, no, it, it is, it is. Um, I mean, the idea is that, you know, our Milky Way is, there's nothing special about it. It's a spiral galaxy yeah. amongst many other spiral galaxies. So it should have the same or similar properties to spiral galaxies that we can see from the outside. And we've measured the magnetic field in, in a couple of the spiral arms, but we don't have like a full picture at all. And uh, so a lot more work needs to be done to, to have a, a full observational picture, but also uh, accurate computer models of, of the magnetic fields. So how far out do the magnetic fields extend from the Milky Way? Cause, I mean, magnetic fields just sort of get weaker and weaker forever, right? Well, the, the thing is, the way we measure them means that we can only see them indirectly through radiation or through other effects that they might have. So as soon as you move away from well, the Milky Way, I'm not really sure because it's, it's very difficult to measure distance along the line of sight, especially when you're dealing with looking through the Milky Way when there's a lot of stuff there and you, it's kind of difficult to see when it ends. But from what we've seen in other spiral galaxies, it seems to stay around the galaxy pretty well as it does i don't think it extends very far out from the from the galaxy itself so you've been building maps yeah if, well, i've been making maps and then using the maps and analyzing the map to get answers and to get like information about um the structure of of the diffuse emission uh you can put a number on it you can use mathematical techniques to actually quantify the shape of things that appear in the uh, in the maps and the last thing that i was doing with these foreground maps is again in relation to this diffuse radio emission it's that it basically constitutes a foreground uh, when you're actually looking at the CMB, uh, the cosmic microwave background. So, I mean, CMB comes up all the time on the Jodcast, but it is, as its name suggests, a background. So in order to look at it properly, you need to get everything else out of the way, which includes our own galaxy, because obviously we're observing from within it, and then other stuff, extragalactic things and etc. But um, even though we study the CMB at higher frequencies than this few gigahertz frequencies that I'm looking at the diffuse radio emission with, synchrotron emission actually is present all the way up to several tens of gigahertz. And um, so it's very useful to understand the behavior of the emission, like what it looks like and, and, and how it varies with frequency and what the effects of things like Faraday rotation are and how it varies in the sky. So, you know, are there empty patches that we can we can select to actually do more precise measurements of the CMB. So the other aspect of my work was actually doing this and characterizing the synchrotron foregrounds so that we can put limits on how much it contaminates CMB measurements. So you'd be adding error bars effectively to models like Planck? You're not exactly adding error bars, but you're helping them subtract the stuff that's in the way. You're saying, I can tell you exactly what you need to subtract in order to get the CMB. And you can also mm -hmm. say you can look in this patch of sky because the contamination is low enough that you can kind of ignore it, for example. So yeah, but yeah basically it'll be a corrective. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, like, yeah, yeah, when I was doing my master's uh, for a similar reason, like we were measuring Faraday rotation, and um, but you'd have to refer back to these papers. I think we had a Pushkarev et al., who just did a big table of all the different corrections you had to make to the different patches of sky. Um, yeah. Due to like foreground. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. Exactly. It's so, it's so it's you'll be pretty contributing much. to that. <laughs> yeah. It's something like that. And um and the reason it's it's really important is because I've been also looking at the polarization and 
with this CMB, the next frontier is obviously de- is detecting polarized CMB and these these famous B modes that uh, would be an indicator of inflation having occurred in the early universe. These things are incredibly faint and incredibly difficult to detect, and so my my work is characterizing specifically the polarized foregrounds uh, to be able to better remove them, so that we can finally try and find these B modes. So um, it's, I guess the first thing you'd recommend is look off the galactic plane. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what you're looking at are high latitudes, high galactic latitudes, so away from the plane, essentially just take the plane and look up uh, or, or below it. But what I ended up finding is that you can use more of the sky than we thought we could. So there are the, the sky is actually emptier of synchrotron radiation than... Well, no one had really properly quantified it and I've sort of said, well, okay, actually, it turns out that people have just been using small patches to make sure that they were really empty but it turns out you can use much wider areas of sky at high latitudes and that's actually really useful because that means that you can get well more sky coverage means more information uh and so you can combine several bits of sky to gain sensitivity and and, and basically make a better measurement and have you found that it's homogeneous across patches of sky or... uh no not really actually that's, uh... that's that's really interesting is that like it, it it does vary a lot and if you get local features so things that happen that are much closer to us than than to the rest of the Milky Way, then that just throws everything off, and you know mm. it, it changes it completely. So, so it's quite the sky is quite interesting. <laughs> but you I think can, you can all agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you can you can figure out which bits are, are empty and which bits are not so empty. Awesome, cool, mm. cool. Thank you very much, Indy. Yeah, no problem. Any time. It's Clark. it's been a pleasure uh, to be on the other side of the table and. Uh, I may I may come back at some point. We hope you do. Yeah, please do. Come back for another presenting at some point. Yeah, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. Cheers. Thanks for that, Fiona and Charlie. Uh, We'd like to apologise for the sound quality in this interview. Uh, One of our microphones was off. Uh, George has done a great job of rescuing it, but it is still clear that there was a problem. Uh, We did record that the day after Indy's Viva party, and (laughs) all three of us were a little tired, I think. Several, Um, several problems. (laughs) So so, so maybe that's why we forgot to turn on one of them. Now, Minnie interviews Dr. Elaine Sadler about ASCAP. Hi, everybody. This is Minnie, and I am really excited to be sitting here today with Professor Elaine Sadler, who is a professor of astrophysics in the School of Physics at the University of Sydney in Australia, and she's also the director of CASTRO. Can you say hi for our listeners, please, Elaine? Hi, everybody. Elaine, what is CASTRO exactly? So CASTRO is the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for All Sky Astrophysics. So one of the things that happens in Australia is that centres are funded to do research that brings together groups of people across the country in a particular area. And all-sky astrophysics means that we're looking at problems that you need to look at very large parts of the sky to solve. So we're funded for seven years. We do research. We have about 180 researchers across Australia and across the world working on a whole set of different fundamental problems in astrophysics. But within the centre, we also organise a lot of meetings. We do outreach and public education, and we have a very active committee in diversity and gender equity, so trying to encourage more women into science. Oh, that's fantastic. That's an issue very close to my own heart. And so Elaine is actually going to be giving us here at JBCA the seminar this afternoon, and Elaine's going to be talking about neutral hydrogen in the distant universe, first results from the Australian SKA Pathfinder Telescope. So this is very exciting. I've heard that ASCAP has had a lot of recent exciting results. Could you be able to tell us a little bit about what you intend to talk about today and any new ASCAP updates? Okay, should I start by talking about the telescope? 
but I'm sure everybody knows about the Square Kilometre Array, the SKA. So one of the things that groups around the world are doing are building smaller test telescopes, really to learn about the sorts of things we're going to do with the Square Kilometre Array, the SKA, and to get experience handling what are really already very, very large amounts of data that are going to come out. Can so. you give us an example of how large are these data sets that ASCAP and the SKA are going to produce? Well, what we've been working with so far is just the first six dishes of ASCAP. So ASCAP is a wide field telescope. It's got a 30 square degree field of view. Wow. Uh, which means that it takes a lot of data. It sees a lot of the sky at the same time. So what we're using is just six dishes to make a little test array. The work we've done was on this array, which was really supposed to be for engineering tests, really to get things calibrated and working. But we managed to get quite a bit of time to do actual astronomical observations. So even with these data sets that are quite small compared to what the full telescope will produce, we're already using a big supercomputer in Perth to get our data processed and get our results out. Again, it takes a few hours for the supercomputer to chew through the data and, and give us our answers. So it takes longer to process the data than it does to observe it? Probably about the same amount of time. Wow. And in the future with the SKA, will the computers be able to keep up with these ridiculously large data sets? So the idea is that the computers will get more and more powerful over time. And there's a relationship called Moore's Law that tells you that technology gets better and better. So every year there's a better kind of phone that comes out that can do even more things than last year's phone. And the idea is the same thing will apply to these supercomputers. So that by the time the SK is built, there'll be computers that are powerful enough to handle all the data, but we certainly don't have those computers yet. That's very exciting. It's interesting that we're relying on kind of this Moore's law to mm. process the future data. And also the computers have to get cheaper and cheaper as well as being more and more powerful so that we can afford to have them. Of course. So you managed to get some science time on this predominantly or initial engineering array. Did you want to tell us a bit about the science that the ASCAP has been doing? Yes, there are a couple of reasons why this is a really powerful telescope for what we want to do. So what we want to do is to look at neutral hydrogen in the distant universe, something people haven't been able to do before. The main reason that people haven't been able to do it is that there is a 21 centimeter spectral line, which is the only signature we have of this hydrogen gas. So hydrogen is, of course, the raw material that stars form out of. So if we want to understand how galaxies are going to change over time, we need to understand this reservoir of hydrogen that's the fuel for star formation. We want to know how that changes as we look back into the cosmic past. And what we know is that if we look back seven or eight billion years, we see that the rate at which stars were forming in galaxies was maybe 10 or 20 times higher than it is today. So it was a much more vigorous and exciting time in the universe. And we think the reason is that there was probably more gas around that stars could form from, but we actually don't have any evidence of that because we don't know anything about the gas that's in these distant galaxies in the cold form that new stars like to form from. So this is what we want to find out. And to do this, we have to observe the redshifted line down at lower frequencies. And that takes us to a range of radio frequencies where there are a lot of transmissions from here on Earth. So there are motor car ignitions, there are mobile phones, there are TV stations, radio stations, aeroplanes, everything you name it, which means that most radio telescopes in the world don't even try to observe at these frequencies. So the 21 centimetre line at redshift zero or on Earth would emit at 21 centimetres. Yeah. And that's a protected band so that radio telescopes have a clear view. And so for nearby galaxies, there's no problem. We can observe them in lots of detail. But for distant galaxies, this line is redshifted, which Shifted means the wave... lower frequencies. Right, the wavelength is longer. 
Yes, and so it's not in this protected band anymore. It's competing with all the other radio noise that comes from our own environment here on Earth, and so people have not been able to see the signal. But the wonderful thing about ASCAP, which is on the SK site in Australia, is that it's essentially free of terrestrial radio noise in the band that we want to look at. So it's completely clean, and it means we've got a clear view into a part of the universe that people really haven't been able to see for about 30 or 40 years. Can you remind me what the density of people is at the ASCAP site? So the ASCAP site is in a council area called Murchison Shire. And Murchison Shire is about the same land area as the Netherlands. And the population is around 100 people that live in that shire. Very quiet. They don't have television or radio stations there. So it's really perfect for what we want to do. It's, of course, a very remote area, and that brings its own problems. We're off the grid, so we have to generate our own electricity. Renewable? There is renewable, so there's a solar power plant going in and lots of sunshine there, so it's a perfect place to do that. And also we need a big powerful fiber link to take all the data from that remote area down to Perth where the supercomputer is. So ASCAP is excellent because it's in this very remote area where the sky at those lower frequencies are free from RFI and you can study neutral hydrogen in the distant universe at seven, yep. eight billion light years away yep. from us. So we're looking at what we call look back time. So the light takes time to reach us. So we're looking back somewhere between about five and eight billion years into the past of the universe. A time when there was much more vigorous star formation. The evidence is actually that there wasn't a lot more hydrogen in galaxies, so that's a bit puzzling. But we actually don't know whether we have a complete census of, of what's going on. The, the observations are very patchy, and we don't have a very clear picture of where this gas might be, what sort of galaxies it might be in. So there's no evidence that there's more hydrogen, but you've got much more star formation occurring. Could it be that, you know, back then the universe was more dense or...? There's a couple of places you could put this. It needs to be fairly cold gas to form into stars, so it could be atomic hydrogen, which is what we see in the 21 centimetre line, or it could be molecular hydrogen, where the two atoms of hydrogen combine to make a molecule that's colder, that's even harder to see. But you can sometimes see it through other molecules like carbon monoxide through millimetre telescopes. And so there's some indication that maybe quite a lot of the gas is in that molecular phase. But even so, it's going to be mixed in with the atomic phase that we see at 21 centimetres. So I think what we'll find out is where this gas is, what sort of galaxies it's in. Is it in galaxies that are very dusty that we don't see with optical telescopes and we haven't looked at before? Or is it in ordinary galaxies just like the ones we see around us? That's very cool. So it says in the abstract for your colloquium that you guys have results from already 100 bright radio sources. That's a lot of data. Is this something yes. you can do because of the wide field of view? No, we actually, at the moment, because we've only got six of the dishes hooked up, we have to look at quite bright sources. We've been looking at one at a time. When the full telescope's done, then we'll have this much bigger field of view. We have to look at about 100 sources at a time. One of my colleagues, James Allison, has written a really nifty automatic line finder so he can automatically find these little blips that come from hydrogen gas so that we don't have to have humans look at them. The computer will actually describe through the data and tell us where it thinks the little bits of gas are in the distant galaxies. So why are you focusing on absorption features as opposed to emission features? So the emission features, as the galaxy gets further and further away, the signal gets fainter and fainter, and it gets fainter as the distance squared. So if the galaxy is twice as far away, the signal's four times fainter from emission, and it becomes harder and harder to pick up. 
if the galaxy is 10 times further away, then you either need a telescope that's uh, 100 times bigger, or you need to observe for 10,000 times as long, and either of those are quite difficult. So people haven't been able to observe this 21 centimeter line in emission much beyond relatively nearby universe. The nice thing about the absorption is what you see is you've got a very bright radio source somewhere in the background, and what you'll see is as the light from that radio source comes, if it passes through a gas cloud, you see this little blip at one frequency, and that frequency tells you the distance of the gas cloud, and if there's a couple of little blips, it can tell you about what the gas is actually doing, whether it's rotating, whether it's coming in or out of that galaxy, so that's how we find them. And the beautiful thing about the absorption measurement is that the detectability doesn't depend with distance. It only depends on having a bright enough source in the background. So the whole universe is open to us with this technique, so long as we've got telescopes and receivers that can pick up the right frequency. The results from these 100 bright radio sources, this is what you said, there's no evidence for an excess of hydrogen or more hydrogen at these? Uh, it's really too early to tell. So what we were doing here is we're testing out the sort of techniques that we want to use when we have the full telescope. So we're saying... Is the telescope stable enough to measure these signals that we want to measure? Are we seeing them coming in at the rate that we expect that they would? Are we finding them reliably? And so on. And what sorts of galaxies are they in? So when we find one of these 21 centimeter lines, we want to know, is it in a big galaxy, a small galaxy? Is it a galaxy with an accreting black hole? Or is it just a small galaxy that's along the line of sight to something much further away? And so what are the implications if there really isn't as much hydrogen as one would expect given the increased star formation rate. What does this imply? It implies that the gas is probably hidden in some other phase that we can't see. If you have a very hot ionized medium, that can be quite hard to detect if it's diffuse gas. We know that gas has to cool and form stars, so maybe it could do that very quickly. But generally, if we don't find this gas either in the atomic phase with 21 centimeter line or in the molecular phase, with a millimetre telescope like ALMA, then there's something we really don't understand about how these galaxies are different from the galaxies around us today. That's really cool. I'm really looking forward to your colloquium later today. So ASCAP presumably doesn't just look at hydrogen absorption. What else is ASCAP um, looking at? It can look at what we call radio continuum sources. So it looks at like a broadband picture of the radio emission from many, many, many different galaxies. That can come from galaxies like our Milky Way, where you've got supernova remnants and other things, exploding stars that make radio hiss, sort of radio static. Or you can get radio emission from jets that come out of supermassive black holes in distant galaxies. Again, the power of the telescope is really these very wide field images that it can make, so it allows you to find really rare and interesting objects if you know what it is that you're looking for. A lot of studies of polarization that can tell you something about how magnetic fields built up in the universe over cosmic time. There'll be some very nice studies of our own Milky Way galaxy, trying to work out how all the bits of, of the Milky Way are put together. And also a lot of really interesting work on transient radio sources, variable sources, things that change very rapidly, usually because there's some sort of extreme physics involved. So exploding stars, gravitational wave signals, pulsars, all sorts of different things. So the wide field of views is good for a number of things. It's good if you want a large sample, because if you're thinking about something that's evolving, it might be evolving very slowly. And if you've got a big sample, then you've got all the different ages and stages of the evolution there. On the other hand, if you've got a rare object, something that only happens 
just very occasionally. Then if you've got a big area of sky, something like the, the fast radio bursts that are very powerful, we don't really know what they are, you're much more likely to be able to find one of those if you're looking at a big area of sky. You're not likely to see it if you're only looking at a small bit. Wow, ASCAP sounds really exciting. I was wondering whether you could tell us a little bit about some of the other projects that you're involved with. I know that when I was in Australia, you were working on the AT20G survey, which I thought was very exciting and a very innovative use of the Australia Telescope Compactory. So one of the things I like to do, again, AT20G was also a wide area survey covering the whole sky. But instead of having a big field of view, that was done with a telescope that actually scanned across the sky very quickly. So it was like dashing across the sky rapidly and building up a picture in strips of what the whole sky looked like. It took us five years to do that survey, observing for about one month every year and just building up this image of the sky. But if we look at the 21 centimetre line, we know a redshift and we know a distance. If we just look and, and we see some radio emission coming, but it doesn't have a spectral line, we don't know how far away it is. It could be something very luminous at a large distance. It could be much less luminous and nearby. So the way that we learn more about these kind of radio sources is that we have to match them up with some sort of optical galaxy that we can study and we can find out what's going on there. So what I've been doing for the last few years is taking that 20 gigahertz survey and saying how many of those radio sources can we associate with really nearby galaxies that we already understand well. And do any of these AT20G sources have H1 detection? Yes, they do. And in fact, we're using these local sources as part of our tests for our H1 studies. So these sources tend to be quite compact, so they've got nice high contrast. They are in galaxies that generally there's a rapidly accreting black hole, so you know there's probably some gas there. And they're very good places to find galaxies in which gas is actually falling onto a central black hole. And what you can do with the H1 absorption, when you know that the gas is inside one of these what we call active galaxies, then you can use that to try and work out what's going on with this gas. Is it falling onto the black hole? And what often happens is not that the gas is falling in, but there's a radio jet that's actually driving gas clouds out of the galaxy. And so galaxies exchange gas with their surroundings. You think of it as an island universe that it's just this little ecosystem. But in fact, a galaxy can be quite a violent place and it can, can expel quite a lot of its gas out of the galaxy, take it away so it can't form new stars. And in fact, some of the mystery gas we were talking about before could actually be in places way outside of galaxies rather than in the places that people have been looking, which is in the galaxies themselves. So this is the feedback that people talk this is, about this a lot. Is what we call radio mode feedback, yes. And I think that's really fascinating because the black hole, the central AGN, is very powerful, but it's very small in the scheme of things, and yet it seems like the black hole is very closely linked to the galaxy mm. itself and the star formation. So it's particularly and... interesting when you get these radio jets that come out of the black hole. You've got plasma here that's been ejected at almost close to the speed of light, now, the luminosity of those, compared to things like the stars in the galaxy, is quite small. So people thought for a long time it wasn't very important in the life of a galaxy. It was kind of an exotic thing. But what people have realized is that this stuff that's coming out is going very fast, and it has a lot of momentum. So I always think this is a bit like a dimly lit express train. So if you're standing on the tracks and an express train comes with its lights off, you can't really see it, so you think, well, there's nothing much there. But of course, if it hits you, then there's quite a profound effect. So that's pretty much what the radio jet is. It's punching through the galaxy, and it, even though you don't see very much, it has a profound effect. And the gas can actually get caught up in this jet and taken away to large distances. Uh, it takes a long time to come back again if it ever does. 
That's very cool. We've had, I think, a few speakers talking about feedback, and、mm. this is an area I find very interesting. Well, we're very lucky to have you. Thank you so much for making the time to let us interview you for the Jodcast. Sure,、oh, it's a real pleasure, Minnie. It's very good to talk to you. Thanks for that, Minnie. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends, and I think you're up first, Fiona. Okay, so um, my odd and end is a.、Uh, uh... Another update on SpaceX and their adventures.、Uh, so I was really excited this Saturday because SpaceX were broadcasting live their launch of their Falcon 9 rocket, which was launching ten、um, Iridium satellites into space. So this was especially exciting because they were attempting again to land the first stage of the rocket、uh, back on Earth,、uh, so that it can be reused. For further projects, and、um, so so I actually missed the start. I missed the first few seconds because I was doing yoga. Very <laughs> <laughs> relaxing, isn't it? Yeah, I know. It was nice and relaxed. So I was like,、mm. oh, this is lovely. I feel so good. And I was like, oh no, 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 no! Ah, the launch. So I had to lep up and、um, and put on the internet and look at it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I did that. And actually, the highlight for me, anyway, w-、uh, would not have been the launch, which is.、Um, Happens、uh, quite often, and is、um, I won't say easy, but、um, as we'll hear later, it's it's not trivial. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but the the real highlight was、um, the landing of the first stage of the rocket, which they、um, they had some cameras actually on the rocket itself, so you could see it from the. I guess a kind of a first rocket perspective,、um, coming back down, and you could see the drone ship underneath waiting to catch it. And、uh, Elon Musk likes to choose、um, uh, witty names for his drone ships. They're actually based on on E and M Banks spaceships, I think. And this one was called "Just Read the Instruction Manual." Just read the instruction manual. <laughs> Just read the instructions.、Uh, the other one is called "Of Course I Still Love You." <laughs> I'm not sure how to take that. I know. <laughs> I'm Sure, there's an innuendo there somewhere. Yeah. But anyway,、uh, it was really cool, and I mean, the the it was just so impressive, actually. So it landed like it landed with with incredible precision on the drone ship. They had a little bullseye. Target painted on it, and you could see it come down and land directly on it. I mean, what you couldn't see was that the drone ship, I think, was also moving underneath to to put、so、itself.、Cool. Yeah, no, it's really really cool. So it landed completely successfully.、Uh, it didn't fall over. It didn't explode. I think this is the is it the fifth or the seventh time they have done this. I think it might be this. Seventh time they've tried, and the fifth time <laughs> they've succeeded. <laughs> also, did you say drone ship? Yeah, so I think all that means is it's a ship with nobody on it. I still find that so cool. Yeah, I know it's we're in an age where that is normal. Yeah, normal as that can be. Yeah,、um, still amazing. Yeah, I mean, obviously they couldn't have anyone on there because、uh, if the rocket exploded, that person would probably die. <laughs> so it has to be it has to be a drone ship, and also they I think so I think they have landed them on the Earth. Or, sorry, on land. They have landed some on land,、um, but I think for similar reasons, it's preferable to land them out to sea、um, on an unoccupied robot ship because then it's it's a lot safer.、Um, so yeah, no, it was、um, it was really cool.、Uh, it was really fun to watch, and、uh, the 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 pay- the payload. 
that they were sending up into space was is also kind of interesting. So um, I mentioned it was Iridium Satellites. So Iridium is a telecommunications company, and they currently have a constellation of 66 satellites. Don't you love <laughs> that a group of satellites is called a constellation? <laughs> They've got 66 satellites in orbit at the moment, and these satellites are responsible for what's known as the Iridium Flare, so the way they're designed, their antennas are kind of like flat surfaces, big flat surfaces, which reflect uh, sunlight occasionally down to Earth. And that manifests as a very bright flare, which sometimes can be so bright you actually see it during the day. I think I've seen them at nighttime. So I've certainly like, you, I don't know, a lot of our listeners are keen um, astronomers, so I'm sure you, you've seen satellites passing overhead and sometimes, sometimes they just are quite unremarkable looking and really you have to be watching very closely to notice them whereas sometimes you will see one that appears to be reflecting sunlight down to the earth so it kind of starts off quite dim on one side of the sky and then gets really really bright and then fades off again so i mean i've seen that i don't know if that's an iridium flare i think they're quite short-lived it's a couple of seconds exactly yeah you just see it kind of get brighter and then and then fade away now, some of the ones I've seen have lasted quite a while. I mean, it depends, I guess, on the, the angle that everything is reflecting at, I suppose. Mm. So, but anyway, they're sending some new Iridium uh, satellites up now. And uh, I think there's going to be 70 in total. And SpaceX have just launched the first 10. Uh, unfortunately, sadly, these ones don't have the same antenna design. So someday Iridium flares will be a thing of the past. Although what will happen to the old ones, I don't know. Uh, we might talk more about lost and abandoned satellites later <laughs> but now i'll pass it on to you ian thanks fiona if you want to grab hold of my attention with a scientific article then just use the words of carl sagan one of my childhood heroes he presented uh, the royal institute lectures in the 70s and that utterly captivated me and i've just given away a rough idea of how old i am so we'll move on very quickly his um the phrase he uses are, are we are made of star stuff and we've discussed this and we're not sure that he actually originated the phrase well it's a uh... It's also a Joni Mitchell quote or, an, or similar to a Joni Mitchell uh, song lyric, but I'm pretty sure, I mean, I don't know. I think we're going to yeah. agree to differ. But yeah. I'll say, I'll <laughs> no, say I don't know. Uh, yeah, he probably He's did. He's a scientist. He probably she did. She isn't. He exactly. Wins. He wins. Um, but the, the article was about the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, and they've uh, just completed a, a survey using the Apogee Telescope. That's the Apache Point Observatory Galactic Evolution Experiment. And isn't, isn't it, it? It's good, isn't it? They managed to get interesting Isn't names it lovely yeah. when the words for things all start with letters that form other words? I love yeah. it that that always happens Mere in science. Cats, <laughs> it just happens so naturally. Yeah. 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 There's a single star. telescope in the world called Jonathan Flats. It just doesn't, <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. Anyway, the, what they've done is they've used this telescope as a 2.5 metre telescope and they've used the near-infrared to take spectrographs of 150,000 stars in our galaxy. And what they're looking for is the CHINOPS, which is an unfortunate anacronym, doesn't, doesn't work quite yeah. as well. Um, yeah. But this is uh, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, phosphorus and sulphur. So they're looking for those elements in the stars and how they're distributed. Now, 97% of us, human beings and animals, are made out of these chinops elements. But the galaxies, the universe, that uh, they're in the minority, about 1% if you're lucky. But what they found is that when you look towards the centre of the galaxy, towards the older stars, then the amount or the proportion of those chinops elements is, is greater than, than out here. Now, they're not making anything of that. They're not saying, oh, life is more likely there because 
they don't yet know what the conditions you need for life are. They just think, well, it's those elements and life will start. Certainly over the last couple of years, there have been many discoveries of exoplanets. And certainly we get very interested when they talk about the Goldilocks zone, the planets that are just at the point where water is going to be a liquid rather yeah. than a solid or a gas. And I suppose it got me thinking, which is, does it have to be carbon? Does it have to be water? Mm -hmm. And so I, I thought, well, let's find out. Let's do some investigating. So I went onto the internet and one of the first elements that's an obvious one is silicon. That's four bonds. Yeah, there's a, isn't there a, a, a sci-fi movie where the, the aliens are made of silicon and, uh, and they come down to Earth and then they, they, they def they're defeated by the Earthlings uh, firing shampoo at them. There's some yeah. dodgy periodic table logic in that film. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. so painful. <laughs> like the rationale is that the shampoo also contains silicon. The, there's so something in the table the where they're like, we're carbon-based and arsenic kills us. Oh, and if you yeah, make that yeah, same yeah, shape yeah, from yeah, silicon, you get it. it. It's oh. Awful. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's good science there, yeah. everyone. Yeah. I hope you're not mm. studying for a chemistry exam in the near future. You'll be <laughs> yeah. not to use them. Yeah. Anyway, so you're saying silicon's promising because it makes four bonds. It is, but, but when you look at it in more detail, it's a metallic element, but it also forms a very strong silicon-oxygen bond. Mm -hmm. uh, and carbon forms good, strong bonds with oxygen, but it also forms a bond that can be broken, which is essential for respiration and the like. Yeah, carbon's, carbon's kind of a good one, isn't it? Car kind of carbon one. is yeah. absolutely ideal. Four bonds, mm -hmm. it does single, double, triple bonds, um, and the single bond is, is very stable, yeah. can be broken. So, I mean, there has been discussion of whether arsenic might be an element that could provide that, but not under the sort of conditions that we're used to. Right. You know, not under standard temperature and pressure. So the question then is, could you have different solvents? Do you have to have water? And if you look ah. at somewhere like Titan, which is the moon around Saturn, and, and the oceans there, and there are oceans, we know that, are made of ammonia. And whether you can have a life form that's based around ammonia in carbon chemistry yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So, so now we're into the speculation territory. And that is, <laughs> what's the weirdest alien you've come across in fiction? Yeah, if you've come across an alien in real life, then... It's tin time, yeah. Right? <laughs> I like how you had to clarify. I mean, the, the the point that I the problem I have is that you look at stuff like Star Trek and the aliens are all humans with funny yeah, they're humanoid. Thing on their forehead or whatever, yeah. I guess, yeah. I mean, I suppose it, it's very hard for us to look for something when we're really. Like we're so limited, we can we can't help but be limited by our experience and what we consider to be intelligent life and mm -hmm. what what we look for i mean because uh, again it's ian m banks and uh, i don't actually read ian m banks but my boyfriend does and he tells me <laughs> <laughs> but he's got a story about a spaceship uh, sorry about a planet that has alien life but the form it takes is is clouds which are in the planet's atmosphere and uh, there's a, a group of scientists observing it and they're, they're looking down and they're looking down and they think oh there's nothing there we just see some clouds and then they realize the clouds are kind of moving themselves in sort of organized patterns and seem to be doing things that are deliberate and not influenced by say weather systems and they conclude that actually that the clouds are, are the population of the planet basically that it's a that it's a life form <laughs> wow, so yeah. to speak um so so i guess yeah i mean which isn't to say that you know the aliens are out there and we're just missing them <laughs> i guess what it means yes, is yes, that uh, uh, don't look up into the manchester sky yeah. and assume that just it's raining <laughs> and it's yeah because yeah, you can <laughs> it's telling us something but, yeah it's <laughs> telling us you need an umbrella yeah. <laughs> um but uh but yeah just i suppose it's a it's a philosophical question of what what counts 
I mean, mm. where do we draw that line? Yeah. What counts? Is it possible that there is life in the universe that we're just incapable of perceiving? Mm-hmm. Mm. Like, not necessarily that it's even invisible to us, but just that we're incapable of perceiving it as... As well, as one of the great science fiction authors, Douglas Adams said, his one of the best aliens he created was the super intelligent shades of the colour blue. <laughs> uh, which really, yeah, you're not got a chance, have you? Yeah, no, not absolutely not. Because uh, it is super intelligent, it's not, not going to reveal itself to you. It's a yeah. funny one too. We talk about standard temperature and pressure, and and really that's a silly, silly word because um, it's like it's specific to here on Earth. But everywhere else in space, as far as we know, it doesn't apply. So mm, we shouldn't yeah. be calling it standard. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also very specific to specific places on Earth. Yeah, well. exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. If you, yeah. yeah. Well, I suppose when they say standard, they mean like the standard, like we've defined. It doesn't have to be. They yeah. Don't, they don't mean like general. But or it's generic. not. You know, it's not even the average temperature of the Earth. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 very much an exceptional case. <laughs> I mean, we've seen uh, sort of organisms that that, that exist in in the extremes. You know, you look mm. at. Um, you know, in geysers, there's bacteria that seem yeah. to thrive. Volcanic there. vents yeah. underwater. My favourite aliens are, are are the ones in Dragon's Egg, which is a book by Robert L. Forward, um, and and it's set on the surface of a neutron star. So instead of sort of electronic chemistry with electrons, you've got atomic chemistry, sort of on the on that sort of scale. And they, these these creatures sort of come to life, or, or you know, they came realize what's going on around them. They see this this spaceship which is a, an Earth spaceship watching this neutron star, mm. and it sort of causes them to evolve. And by the end of the book, they're buzzing around in little spaceships around, <laughs> but only about ten minutes after the spaceships arrive, because their life uh, It's like that episode of The Simpsons where Lisa creates Exactly, life. the tooth, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And the tooth, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Very exactly similar. like that. And, uh, and actually, mm. speaking of weird alien forms, I mean, there's a... I mean, you, you say Carl Sagan was what made you um, be interested in physics. Uh, what got me here was, well, among many random things, my watching of Futurama as a teenager. <laughs> um, yeah. It was one of my favourite cartoons. I liked it a lot. I thought, that's pretty. I like this. Maybe I'll be an astronomer. Or a delivery driver. Or a delivery yeah. driver. <laughs> they get to go on great adventures. I mean, they yes. do, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't, I mean, let me just clarify, at no stage did I ever think I would actually go to space or see an alien, but um, <laughs> I guess it, it activated my interest in things in space and uh, in science. Well, we drifted so far off the point then, but <laughs> if you would like to take a look at the results of the Slow Digital Sky Survey, uh, we'll put a link to their site on, on the website uh, and you can have a look at any one of the 150,000 stars in our galaxy and take a look at their spectra. Sounds lovely. Okay, so now on to my odd and end for this month um, about another space mission, but unfortunately one that wasn't quite as successful oh. as the SpaceX one. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is with the news that this week the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, or JAXA, had yet another spacecraft problem. Oh, um, no. So you'll possibly know um, from last year, the Astro H, or Hitomi, um, I don't know why it has two names, but it does, um, was a Japanese X-ray telescope that was um, launched but unfortunately they lost contact with it shortly after launch and I don't actually know the fate of it I'll be honest but I think it crashed somewhere or it broke up in the air something like that 
And this week, Jax has had yet another spacecraft that's been lost. Uh, so this time they were launching a micro satellite, um, and it was actually meant to be a really, really cheap mission, um, only weighed um, just over two tons or two and a half tons, I think, and using a rocket that had been used before. But unfortunately, they lost contact with the, the rocket shortly after launch, um, and it didn't even make it into orbit, just crashing in the ocean just oh, off the no. southeast coast of oh, japan dear. sad days um which is just it's kind of a bit of a shame but i thought it's kind of worth mentioning because you you often don't see the failures right is unless they involve people <clears throat> yeah um, <laughs> which fortunately this didn't yeah um yeah. but obviously science does involve lots of these little failures and it's devastating every time and i mean in this case as well because you had this these problems with Astro H last year, you used to have to have to wonder: is there something going on here? What's going wrong? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess you know. I suppose there's two failures in close proximity to each other. But how many satellites have? How many successful launches have Japan had? That's true. You know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it could just be the case that you know, mm-hmm. you you're going to get some failures. Uh, here we've had two that happened um, in a relatively short span of time, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I guess I would, I would want them to be optimistic and keep on, keep yeah, on, try, def- keep def- on def- trying to send things yeah. into space. Think, it's not easy. I'm just, I'm not over the asteroid disaster. The X-ray, X-ray satellite would have been really yeah. important to my field yeah. of research, oh. <laughs> which is galaxy clusters. Mm. So I'm, I'm kind of still a little bit heartbroken. Yeah. Um. Uh, but yeah, no, and at least, at least it crashed into the sea, um, yes. where there was no risk of it doing any damage to anyone or anything. Because mm-hmm. I was talking to, um, to our own Ben Shaw the other day about this and about satellites and he was telling me there's actually there's a region uh, near the south pole in antarctica where they got it kind of um, marked out and if you're i guess if you've got a satellite and you want it it's going to crash back down to earth but you still have control over it or you're, you're still in contact with it you can um desirable to have it crash here in this region in the south pole um which i guess because there's not many people there but there are some people there so when they're doing this they have to tell them they have to let them know <laughs> don't go outside <laughs> i think that's the nemo point which is it's i think i think that's the same place and okay. it's the place that's furthest it's the point on the earth that's furthest away from land Ah, okay. Um, oh, well, that makes sense then. All right. That makes um, sense. So, yeah. But there might be ships and stuff. Yeah, you can yeah, still get ships, and I'm I, sure I there's still traffic there. I was getting worried about the penguins, I'll be honest. The penguins, yeah. The visions yeah. of these penguins. I know. What's that coming towards us? It doesn't look good, Ari. <laughs> Hello, new friend. <laughs> <laughs> after, after watching Planet Earth and seeing those penguins diving off rocks, I'm oh. convinced they can survive anything. Oh, they were gorgeous. They? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those penguins were hardcore. Yes. <laughs> um, and now, some people who know where things actually are, Here are Ben, George and Fiona with Ask an Astronomer. So this question comes from Gillian and Gillian asks, what's the biggest danger we face from space and what can we do about it? Well, space is full of danger. The the universe isn't a hospitable place for life and there's only one tiny part of it that we know about so far where life is possible and that's the Earth itself. But even that's not completely shielded from danger. For example, the sun in a few billion years is going to expand and scorch the Earth possibly even consume it altogether. That is going to happen, but that poses absolutely no danger to you in your lifetime. By a very wide margin, the largest hazard facing our sanctuary on Earth is impact from a large enough comet or asteroid. Most of the asteroids in the solar system lie between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, and perturbations on their orbits, either from gravitational interactions with Jupiter or with each other, can send them into the inner solar system on potentially Earth-crossing orbits. 
Others just live in the inner solar system on highly eccentric orbits, i.e. orbits that are not circular but shaped more like an ellipse, and this can make them quite difficult to spot. We often see on the news that an asteroid has passed by the Earth and was only discovered near its closest approach to the Earth. Luckily so far, all of these have safely passed us by, but it does mean that we're insensitive to detecting a large fraction of the objects out there until they're too close to give us any time to devise ways of stopping them from hitting. The problem with asteroids is they are difficult to find. They're small and they tend to be dark in colour, and the eccentric nature of their orbits means that they're likely to come at us from the direction of the Sun. This is a problem because searching for small objects near the Sun is difficult, as the Sun is quite bright and so the glow from a little rock isn't going to be very noticeable. Secondly, if they're coming at us from the direction of the Sun, they're lit from the back, which isn't very helpful. As they get closer, they may appear as a lit crescent, similar to when the Moon is mostly backlit, and so you're only seeing light from a small part of an already small object. Fortunately, the more dangerous the object, the bigger it is, and the bigger it is, the easier it is to spot. We think we've got most of the dinosaur killers catalogued, and there's nothing coming our way in the near future that's that cataclysmic. However, it doesn't take a huge rock, maybe a few hundred yards across, to wipe out a city. With enough warning, though, there are things we can do. If you've seen the film Armageddon, you'll remember that they trigger a load of bombs on and in an impactor. This is a bad idea for two possible reasons. One, turning an impactor into lots of little impactors by shattering it into pieces is probably not going to minimise the total damage to the Earth. You're just turning a localised impact into a worldwide blitz. Secondly, the composition of the asteroid matters. If it's of a very low density, and some asteroids have been measured to have the density of, say, cork or even foam, then there's a chance that the impactor will simply just absorb the energy from the explosion. Alternatively, the asteroid could be made of iron, in which case triggering nuclear bombs on the surface just isn't going to do much to disrupt its physical integrity. In this case, you're potentially making this worse, as you now have a radioactive asteroid coming in instead of just an asteroid. Another possibility is that we trigger a series of small explosives on the surface. The impulses from these will slowly change the orbit from a dangerous one to a safe one, which sounds reasonable in theory, but in reality could be very hazardous, as if we get it wrong, we potentially change the orbit from one that's quite dangerous to one that's very dangerous. Also, asteroids tend to be quite rapid and erratic rotators, which can add extra complications to doing this. A plausible possibility to move an asteroid out of the way is a process called gravitational tethering. This involves sending a small spacecraft to the asteroid and using the self-gravity of the spacecraft itself to gently redirect the asteroid onto a safe trajectory. This has the advantage of being effective regardless of the composition of the asteroid. Additionally, having spacecraft gravitationally locked to an asteroid would allow extremely precise calculations of its orbit, allowing us to measure its long-term trajectory. Even more exciting is the possibility of moving it into a safe orbit around the Earth, where we could continuously mine it for resources. So the upshot is that given enough time we can act, and the asteroids themselves don't necessarily have to present a problem on their own, as there are things we can do about them. Time is the key factor in this, as they're quite difficult to detect, and so more resources should be directed to finding them, as well as making movies about them. But like I said, dinosaur killers are rare, and we have most of them catalogued, we think, and there are people looking out for the city killers. There's a programme called the B612 Foundation which aims to have 90% of near-Earth asteroids greater than a few hundred metres across, catalogued by a new space observatory called Sentinel, and we'll place a link to their website in the show notes. Also, if you're interested in knowing what's trespassing in our backyard at the moment, you can look at NASA's 
near-Earth object program at neo.jpl.nasa.gov. What would happen if we, if our galaxy, ended up colliding with another one? Well, I've actually done research on this, although not specifically on the Milky Way. The Milky Way frequently collides with and absorbs many dwarf galaxies, and is also expected to eventually merge with the Andromeda Galaxy, which is the closest spiral galaxy to ours. When dwarf galaxies fall into the Milky Way, they typically get stretched and destroyed by the gravitational force exerted by the Milky Way itself. Most of the stars eventually fall into the Milky Way, but since the stars don't collide with anything that can stop their motion, they eventually end up orbiting the Milky Way, albeit in strange orbits that may take the stars way outside the plane of the galaxy. The gas within the dwarf galaxy would smack into the gas within the disk of the Milky Way galaxy and would end up eventually settling within the disk of our own galaxy. After a while, you would not be able to tell that much of anything happened at all. You would just see the Milky Way galaxy as a spiral galaxy with a few more stars and strange orbits and a little bit more gas. However, when two spiral galaxies merge together, as we expect the Milky Way and the Andromeda galaxy to do in a few hundreds of millions of years, the first thing that happens is that the two spiral galaxies get severely distorted. So stars in the outer parts of the spiral galaxies would get flung out in long extended features called tails, while a bridge may form between the galaxies once they get close enough together. Eventually, the two disks will merge together. The orbits of the stars, which don't have anything to stop them, will end up completely scrambled. They will look like they're traveling in random directions, and the stars in the galaxy that forms from the merger will end up looking like a ball. The gas from the disks in both galaxies will smack into each other, and all of this gas will stop moving, and then fall into the center of the merged system. Now, in space, when you cause gas clouds to collapse, they typically form stars. So if you take all of the gas in two large spiral galaxies, like the Milky Way and Andromeda Galaxy, you're going to form a huge amount of stars. And astronomers typically call this a starburst. That's the same name as the starburst candies. The starburst would probably end up using up all of the gas uh, within the merged galaxy. So when the Milky Way and Andromeda galaxy finished merging, you would no longer have any gas to form stars. You would just be left with this ball of stars which are slowly getting older over time. And the merger remnant would end up looking like an elliptical galaxy. So that's what we expect to happen when the Milky Way galaxy merges with the Andromeda galaxy. But that's a very long time into the future. Oliver has asked us, what can you see through a telescope? So the short answer, Oliver, is you can see anything through a telescope if the telescope is pointing at it. A telescope is basically just a device to look at things which are far away because it helps us to make things which are far away look bigger and closer. 
so that's the short answer. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm assuming you wanted a bit more than that. The long answer is we have all different kinds of telescopes depending on the kind of thing we want to look at. The telescope you might be most familiar with is called an optical telescope and that is for looking at light that we can see with our eyes. So in other words, it looks at things that we are already capable of seeing ourselves, but they're just too far away for us to see. So, for example, stars and planets and, you know, anything, anything in space, really. And um, it works by collecting the light um, from these distance objects and magnifying it so that the things that it's looking at are big enough for us to see. So that's what you can see with an optical telescope. But those things I just mentioned, so stars and planets and also galaxies and, and lots of other things, um, even things that you wouldn't necessarily even think of as being things, for example, like bits of dust that are floating around in space. They also emit other types of light that we can't see with our eyes. So the light that we can see with our eyes is um, the colours of the rainbow, so red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo and violet. I'm sure you're already familiar. The human eye is capable of seeing those colours and those colours have different wavelengths. But there are other wavelengths uh, above and below that spectrum, above and below those colours in the rainbow, uh, that we can't see. Uh, so, for example, microwaves. I mean, I know you can see the microwave in your kitchen, but <laughs> it's, um, it's called a microwave because it emits a type of light called microwaves. We can't see radio waves, which are the kind of waves that the telescope at Jodrell Bank uh, is able to see. We can't see x-rays. We can't see infrared light, which is what's emitted when something is very hot. So there's all these different types of light that the human eye can't see, but that gets emitted from things in space and that we want to see because it might tell us different information about the objects that we're looking at. So the visible light, the light on the optical spectrum that comes from a star, that tells us some things about the star, but we can learn more about it by looking also at the x-rays and the radio emission. It just tells us different parts of the story about that star. So the Lovell Telescope sees radio waves and we use it to look at all kinds of different things. Like there's the dust that I mentioned before that a lot of astronomers are very interested in. I use it myself uh, to look not at stars, but at clouds that are around stars. Not clouds like full of rain, but of material that gets expelled from the surface of the star when there's an explosion. So you can see that in the optical, but you can get kind of a, not a better look at it, but a different look at it uh, at radio wavelengths. And you can look at how fast it's expanding and what it's doing. There's also a big group of people here who use the Lovell telescope to look at pulsars, which are a really interesting type of star that sort of flashes on and off really quickly. A little bit like a lighthouse, they're sometimes described. And some people use radio telescopes to look at galaxies that are really, really far away. So all the visible light from the galaxies gets absorbed uh, on its path here to Earth. It gets absorbed by other things in space that are between it and us. But the radio waves uh, come straight to us so we can use the radio emission to see them, whereas we wouldn't be able to use the optical light to see them. 
So I know I've leaned kind of heavily on radio telescopes here because that's what I do. But uh, but I hope that begins to answer your question as to what we can see through a telescope. Like I said, the short answer is anything we want. Obviously, there's a more complicated answer too, which I've tried to give you. So I hope that helps, Oliver. Thank you for your question. Thanks for that, Ben, George and Fiona. And now on to the feedback. I believe you've got a postcard for us, Ian. I do indeed, Monique. It doesn't actually have a picture of a star or a telescope or anything on it. It has a picture of the Anderson boat lift. Now, I'll read it. It's from Ellen, and it says, Happy New Year, Jodcasters. Thank you very much, Ellen. Uh, sadly, the Jodrell Bank Visitor Centre was closed on New Year's Eve. Ah, oh, I think I oh. see where we're going with this one. <laughs> so I took my parents to the other uh, great engineering marvel, the Anderson Boat Lift, which is yes, just north of Northwich. So here's to another excellent year of astronomy. Well, Alan, I hope you and your parents will be visiting the uh, visitor centre in the not-too-distant future. Okay, so we have one email um, from Alistair McCrill, and the email reads as follows. I love the Jodcast, and it could be because I'm ageing, but please, if you are Irish, keep your volume consistent. I love your work. Keep it up. I just want to hear what you have to say without rewinding. Cheers, Alistair. So firstly, Alistair, you know, don't be shy. You can refer to me by name. <laughs> you may say, Fiona, please keep your volume consistent. That's a perfectly legitimate criticism and I'll work on that. Um, so yeah, thank you for that uh, constructive criticism. But there's no need to reduce it to my nationality. There are some Irish people who are perfectly capable of talking at the same volume all the time. So uh, we've also got Therese Cantwell, who's also from Cork. So you um, run the risk there of uh, making us confused. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so we've also had some lovely messages and comments on Facebook. Um, first one from Teresa. Merry Christmas, everybody. Thanks so much for all your hard work this year. Here's to many more. Um, and to you too, Teresa. Um, we've also had a comment from Philip King saying, I've only listened to the first half an hour and it's already shaping up to be another lively and fascinating episode. Excellent interview with Professor Garrett. Well done, Minnie Mao. Well, we'll definitely pass that on to Minnie as well. Mm. Um, and finally, we've got um, another message from Paul saying, thank you guys. And I hope you all have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you too. Let's hope 2017 is better than 2016. So... What was wrong with 2016? Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I didn't shite. think of anything going wrong with 2016. Did you? Like, you know? uh, Nobody died. <laughs> no odd decisions made. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I may have slept through most of it. I think that was the right way to spend 2016. <laughs> um, um, we also had uh, thanks for all the likes and shares on Twitter as well. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that if you want to, you can send us something through the post and the address is on the website. Thanks to Elaine Sadler and Indy Leclerc for the interviews. The editors were Damien Trin, George Bendo, Tom Scragg and Charlie Walker. The producer was Benjamin Shaw. Until next time. Ciao. Ciao. Ciao.